Hello and welcome to the Byzantine Scotist. Today we're going to be continuing our walk through the scriptures to see how it points forward to Jesus as the Messiah. In this video, we're going to be looking at Genesis 4 through 6, which is the time before the flood. So in the last video, we talked about how Adam was both a priest and a king, because he has a twofold role of tilling and keeping the land. So this shows his role both as a priest, but also to some degree as a king in his dominion over the land. And we hear in uh, Genesis 4, right after the fall, that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. So we see here that Abel has a priestly role because animals are not yet eaten. We don't see, it's not until Genesis 9 when Noah departs from the ark that humans are finally given the authority to eat animals. Currently, they're only given authority to eat things that grow. We see that in Genesis 1. And so if Abel is raising animals, the reason he must be doing so is for sacrifices. And Cain has authority over the land, though. And so we see that Cain here has a, an authority as a king. But what we see happen then, and we, this is important to notice, is that the role of priest and king are divided into two distinct offices. This is something we frequently see in scripture as time develops, that we see eventually in the Mosaic era, uh, Moses is the role of king and um, Aaron has the role of priest, but in the generations before that, the patriarchs were priest kings. And then going forward, we eventually see a division of two different tribes, that the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe, and so they don't have any land within Israel. They simply uh, live among all the other tribes acting as uh, priests. And then eventually, in the time of King David, we see one tribe, specifically the tribe of Judah, being given the office of kingship. And so now the offices of priestship and kingship are in two different uh, people. And this is something the church has always held, that people who are priestly authorities should not be holding political office. But we're not saying the two should be separated. There's still a very close connection between the two because we ultimately have one end, even if we have two parts to that end. We have a natural part, which the king rules over, but we also have a supernatural part that continues on after death. And so that natural part of our end, the natural end, is subordinate to the supernatural end. And so there has to be two distinct authorities, but the two authorities have to be in close coordination. Uh, the Catholic Church has rejected separation of church and state, considered as an actual separation between the two. It's a distinction of office, but there's ultimately one end which we're ordered to, one final ultimate end, and so the two offices have to work together. And so we see here these two offices have now been brought into distinction. Adam had both the role of priest and king, but now Adam seems to have retired, and we now have Abel acting as priest and Cain acting as king. But Cain goes against the role he's supposed to and offers a sacrifice when that was, Cain, when that was Abel's job. And so as a result, God rebukes Cain and rejects his sacrifice. Ms. Cain has trespassed on this distinction of offices. 
And so Cain gets angry at this rebuke from God himself. You think about it, these sacrifices were probably happening at the gates of Eden in front of the entire human race. And so this would have been extremely humiliating for Cain to be rebuked by God himself. And so Cain gets mad and goes out into the field and kills Abel. And what we hear from God in response is that, um, you know, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. I mean, so we see a few things here. We see the ground actually crying out for vengeance against Cain. All right, the blood goes down, it soaks down into the ground. And so this violence is going to build up further and further as the land continues to receive more and more blood. And there's a great video from Cobain on YouTube going through this whole theme in scripture. So I'll link it in the comment section, not the comment section, of the description of the video, if you want to look into this theme in more detail. But just to get a general sense of it, right, the land itself is going to rise up in vengeance. The land itself actually has a role in prosecuting uh, punishment upon sin because man, as we talked about in the last video, is the mediator between heaven and earth. And man is also the microcosm that sums up the whole creation because he's created in the image of the Logos. And so when man commits sin, it actually destroys the fabric of the world itself. We've seen in recent years an increasing um, amount of natural destruction of the world. Um, and we've also seen an increase in sin, but I don't want to get into politics, so I'll just leave that out there and you can think of it what you want to. But we see in this time that the acts of humans are destroying the world, not as humans are ripping apart the world, but that the land has to absorb the blood of those who were killed. And so as a result, it cries out in vengeance. And so we see Cain's throne is lost, that he's sent into exile. Right? As we talked about in the last video, leaving the garden is the first exile of scripture, that they have to go out into the land. But now he has to go out even further into this other land of Nod, further away from the land around the garden. And so this continues the theme of exile. Remember from the last video, exile is equivalent to death. And so Cain is entering further into a death state by being sent out. But Cain is here worried about being killed by uh, the people for the sin he's committed. And so God says, not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So we see here that the death penalty is refused. Why is that? As we see later on in scripture, uh, St. Paul says that it is the authority of uh, the state to wield this power of death. Uh, the, he bears not the sword in vain, as St. Paul says. And so what we're seeing here is that Cain is no longer king, and so there is nobody to carry out the punishment of the death penalty. 
Now, what happens because of this, though? We're going to see violence get worse and worse upon the earth until ultimately the flood has to come because there's no way to stop this growth of violence. We see the reasoning behind the death penalty in two spots, in Genesis 9 and again in the Law of Moses. And we see in the Law of Moses the reason behind the death penalty is that it is to purge the evil from among you. There has to be some way to remove evil from your midst or else that evil is going to continue to spread and get worse, right? If somebody has cancer in part of their body, that part of the body might have to be amputated or else the cancer is going to spread to their whole body and kill them. And so by amputating that part of their body, we're stopping the spread of that virus to their whole body. Even in recent years when the church has cautioned more against the death penalty, it's said that this is because we now have life in prison and we can reasonably hold them there. At least this is the reasoning behind it, is that we theoretically could hold them there. And so this is enough to stop the continued spread of this evil to society. So what's important is not necessarily the method by which we're carrying out judgment, but that there is some way to remove a cancerous element from society so that sin does not spread to the whole society. And so we don't know all the details of what happened uh, between the time of Cain and Abel and the time of the flood. So we have to try and read between the lines to see if we can know what happened. Because we know uh, around 1,000 to 2,000 years passed within this time. And so there must have been lots of stuff that happened that isn't recorded for us. So let's try and read between the lines. So one thing we are told happened is that Cain goes out and he builds a city. And he also has a son who he names literally City, Enoch. And so we can try and guess, based off the names of each of the peoples in Cain's dynasty, what happened, seeing if this rule can be followed out further, and to see what comes of that. Now one thing we want to remember also is we have here a movement from garden to city. Man used to live in the Garden of Eden. They moved out into the land. They started doing agriculture in the land. And now they've moved into a city. And if we look all the way to the end of the Bible, we see humans living within the New Jerusalem, within a city. But we see lots of garden-like features to this city. And if you think about it, cities are the work of humans, right? Cities are something we build versus gardens are something natural. I mean, yes, they are trimmed by humans to keep them in a certain condition, but the growth of plants is something given by God. And so we have the work of the garden, which is a um, natural thing, and then we move to a man-made thing. And what we're ultimately going to get at the end of time is a mixture, just like we have the incarnation, which is the merging of Christ's divine nature and Christ's human nature. Not the merging, but their union within one person. So at the end of time, we have a merging of human activity, the city, with the divine activity, the garden. And these two were united into one coherent whole in which the two are brought together. Uh, James Jordan has some really wonderful lectures on this, so I'm also going to link those below in the description, which goes into more detail. But we shouldn't reject the city. This is a common tendency within a lot of traditionalist circles, is to want to walk back away from 
uh, the city and move out to the land. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to live out in the land. There's nothing bad about agriculture. But it's also not necessarily superior. The, the city is eschatological. The city points forward to the future. We should also note the language that's used here, that Cain builds the city. Now, we actually have the same Hebrew word within Genesis 2, that Eve is built out of the side of Adam. Right? Eve is eschatological, as I went into in the last video. That's the role of the feminine, is to be eschatological. And so cities are feminine in the Bible. They're eschatological. They're brides. Right? The New Jerusalem, we're told, looks like a bride for Christ. Right? Cities are feminine in Scripture. So let's go through then the rest of the names. We have Ired, which means man of the untamed city. We then have Mehujael, which means he who strikes out against God. We then have Methushael, which means he who kills the peace of God. And then we have Lamech, which means king. So we see things getting worse and worse here among the Canaanites and things getting more and more violent. And even though Lamech's just mean king, we hear about how Lamech takes lots of people into slavery. He does violence upon the land. And uh, he also sings a psalm to God. He's, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, hearken to what I say. I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So who else creates psalms in the Bible? That's King David, our, our sort of archetypical king in the Bible. He creates an entire book of psalms. And so here we have a false psalm by Lamech, right? Because Lamech is committing the sin of presumption. He looks back and says, well, God said there should be punishment upon Cain, if any, or punishment upon anyone who kills Cain. Now, if I am 11 times worse than Cain, then there should be 11 times worse punishment upon whoever kills me. Uh, but of course, we know this is the sin of presumption. God hasn't actually told Lamech that there would be punishment against anyone who kills him. We also hear of the creation of musical instruments. And this is, again, eschatological, right? In the city, lots of people are together, so they can be brought together in this great orchestra. Just like in the Psalms, we hear about all these different instruments being used to praise God. I'm not going to comment on how this relates to liturgy. Maybe if people are interested, I could do a video in the future, but I'm not entirely sure how I feel about how this relates to liturgy. So I'm just going to sidestep that. But I think it is interesting and should be looked into. And we also then have the creation of um, metals being used here for the first time. And these are metals. What are they used for? They're used to forge weapons. And so we're seeing more and more violence upon the earth. And ultimately, then, the iniquity of the Canaanites reaches its maximum level after seven generations. And we don't hear any more about the Canaanites in the rest of the Bible after this point. They're wiped out. And so now let's look into how, uh, what is their downfall and why it is we don't hear about them after seven generations. And so we have to then look at the other dynasty, which is the line of Seth. Now, at the time of seven generations, we have the birth of another Enoch from the line of uh, the Sethite dynasty. So following the same rule here, right, if we have someone named City, then we should assume that his father builds a city. And so we can assume that 
Jared, the father of Enoch, builds a city in this sixth generation. Now, if we looked over at the Canaanite line, the sixth generation is when we have Methushael, he who destroys the peace of God. And so if he's destroying the peace, then we can assume that he's starting a war. And so I think what happens at this time, and I get this theory from Cobain, um, from his blog, he has some good articles on this, is that Methushael invades the land of um, the Sethites at this time in the sixth generation because the Jaredites, the Sethites rather, have now built a city under King Jared. And so this is going, this is now starting a war because there is now land here that's worth conquering. There's another city here. But we ultimately then don't see the uh we we see they seem to win at first right because lamech takes many wives they build this technology probably building this technology partly for this war that's been going on for hundreds of years now um but we ultimately then see um the canaanite line wiped out and so it seems like the sethites won now, how is this that the uh, Sethites won? This is just a theory, but we see around this same time, the Nephilim is showing up. This is this great mystery of what they are in scripture. Now, it seems to me that the Nephilim are almost certainly the offspring of human and demonic intermarriage. Now, this is the only view that exists in ancient Judaism. Uh, we don't only see it in the Book of Enoch, but other works like the Book of Giants. Um, we then find it among all the earliest fathers. This is the view of Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, every single father in like the first 200 years of the church who mentions this. Uh, says that they're almost certainly the offspring of human and demon in our marriage. Um, I've heard it's in Augustine that you first get a departure from this. I'm not, I haven't researched it enough to know if Augustine's actually the first one who departs from this. And the reason for departing from this view is that we don't have, we can't seem to have metaphysically, right, a literal offspring of humans and demons. But what we see in a lot of the ancient world is that humans would be ritually consecrated to demons, right? There was a lot of the time pagan priestesses would be ritually married to demons. And so if these demons, if these women who were getting ritually married to demons, they were probably in some way then impregnated and to have kids. And these kids would be demonically possessed through their entire life. And we see in scripture that God very frequently causes women to bear children. Um, and so I don't see why it couldn't be the case that the demons couldn't also influence the woman to make uh, fertility easier. But in any case, it seems that there are these demonic offspring, and if they were possessed by demons for their entire life, we know that demons can cause things like superhuman strength, they can cause people physical deformities, so demonic possession from birth could cause serious deformities and these could have been literally giants that were nine ten feet tall from this demonic possession 
And so it seems that there was this ritual intermarriage between the Sethites and demons to produce the Nephilim so that ultimately they can win this war and defeat the Canaanites. But even though they win, it's through this unrighteous means, right? This marriage with demons that we're only supposed to be allied with God. This is what the prophets was, were constantly criticizing Israel for. And so the Sethites have ultimately turned away. They're no longer righteous because they thought in order to win this war, they needed to make an alliance with demons. They thought that God wouldn't be enough to defend them. It's also worth noting here, if we look at the wording of the passage of the creation of the Nephilim, we hear about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, sons of God, when that phrase comes up in scripture, almost always refers to demons, or rather always, always refers to angelic beings, whether they be good or bad. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, where it refers to demons, that the nations are uh, separated according to the number of the sons of God. But here it seems to be these are demonic. And yes, it can sometimes refer to the people who are righteous, but that's within the context of them being adopted and brought up to the divine council. And see my last video on God's plan and history to, for details of what the divine council is. And then daughters of men, we hear, remember the word for man in scripture, it uh, can be a few different words, but it's usually Adam. And so we hear earlier about Seth is the son of Adam. Uh, we hear that at the beginning of Genesis 5. And so the daughters of man, well, the most recent use of man is talking about Adam and the descendants of Adam. So the daughters of man probably are the descendants of Adam. And so that would be the Sethites. And so at this time, we see, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this new figure of, of Enoch, a second character named Enoch. Now, Enoch is a uh, descendant of Jared, but most of the children in the Sethite dynasty are born when the father is in his 60s. But we know that Enoch was born when Jared was about 160 years old. So this seems to imply that Enoch was not the firstborn son like the other ones. He's not uh, the continuation of this royal line. But instead, he's the righteous line through which the human race continues as it continues down to Noah. And it seems that Enoch had a mission of preaching. We hear in um, the book of Jude, uh, quote, it was these also that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, unquote. So we see here that Enoch was um, preaching against these actions of ungodliness. And so it seems that Enoch prophesied against the house of Jared and called him back to faithfulness. We hear that Enoch was taken up into heaven after he lived 365 years. And so it seems that Enoch then is a new Elijah taken up into heaven after his righteous preaching. 
And so the purpose of the, of the prophet Elijah is that he went to the house of Ahab and preached against the devotion to Baal and called them back to faithfulness to the true God. And so that seems like what Enoch's doing. He's calling the Sethites back to the tr worship of the true God and away from this alliance with demons. Since we're discussing this quote from Enoch here, it's worth mentioning that we have, so we have a writings called the Book of Enoch, where this quote is contained within it. And it, the Book of Enoch was read by some of the early church fathers. We know it existed among Jews. Uh, because we have fragments of it among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it ultimately didn't make it into scripture. And a lot of people nowadays are looking back at it and thinking maybe it should have been included in scripture. But I think it's important to note that what we know about the Book of Enoch points to it very clearly being from the Second Temple period and not actually from Enoch himself. And so the book of Enoch, I think overall, is not necessarily a reliable source for what actually happened, but it does provide us an important witness of how the Jews at that time, the time right before the coming of our Lord, and it shows us how they conceived of the world, that they conceived of the world as um, having received all these pagan practices from demons and under the rule of these false gods, these demons, and that the Messiah, they believe the Messiah pre-existed and that the Messiah would come and free people from this demonic rule over the earth. And so it's very useful to help us see, and I think the book of Enoch heavily comes from a very good overall reflection on these passages of scripture. And so I don't think it's useless. I just think we shouldn't consider it as the authority of Scripture because the church has said that it's not Scripture. But it is worth noting that at least this quote seems to be authentic according to the book of Jude. It's interesting, this is actually not identical to the quote from the book of Enoch. So that is also a point that maybe we shouldn't take the book of Enoch as historical fact that St. Jude is drawing on the same tradition as the book of Enoch, but not necessarily quoting it word for word. I also want to quickly note here that it's interesting that if you look in the book of Enoch with this quote, it talks about God coming to prosecute the flesh and to focuses on the flesh, which is a common theme we see then in um, the flood, that the flood comes, as I talked about earlier in this video, to destroy the flesh. And so it seems that the ancient Jews reflected upon these passages of scripture and then put into the mouth of Enoch, possibly by an oral tradition here, since this quote made it into the book of Jude, um, about the prosecution of the flesh and the destruction of the flesh. So I hope you enjoyed that video. In the next video, we're going to be going in and looking at the flood itself and all the very interesting literary patterns. That will be a lot more solidly grounded in the text. Here we really only have these little bits of fragments, and so we really have to piece together what happened before the flood. I also apologize for the last few videos being a little bit shorter. I got a really horrible cold, and I've still been recovering from the cough, so I really just can't talk too long on these videos. Um, the next video that will come out next week, I'll go back to the Introduction to Scotism series and we'll begin to look at concepts like the univocity of being and the infinity of divine being. 
Uh, please be sure if you like this video to like, uh, comment, subscribe, hit the bell icon for notifications. If you like these videos, please subscribe on Patreon uh, very soon, possibly even by the time this video is out to the public. I'll have interviews up that are for Patreon subscribers. You can also get early access to these videos through Patreon. Um, and the Patreon subscriptions also help me make these videos by providing me the money to pay for all this time I put into these videos because these take a long time to make. So, thank you, and I'll see you next week.